So we're in our series, our summer series, Fruit of the Spirit. We've covered love, the, the aspects of this fruit, love and joy, over the last two weeks. And now we're going to turn to peace. And we've seen in the first two that there are innate human desires, that there's something that everyone wants. Everyone wants love. They want to be loved. And, and we all desire it. We all want to be happy. Uh, people who don't want these things... We may not say this to their face, but we recognize that there's something off about them, right? Like there's something that's not quite right about a person who just desires no love, and we would seek to help that person. We would seek to meet that person where they're at and love them. Um, and then people who just decide and decidedly act in such a way that they don't want to be happy, don't pursue happiness, uh, we would seek to help that person. These are innate human desires, and so is peace. Uh, and, and here's the interesting thing about it, and, and I didn't realize that this was such a controversial, not controversial in a conflicting way, but controversial in, in, in the way in which it just, well, I was surprised that people would struggle with it, but we do. Um, the reality is, is that the, 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 the way that these things work out, the world can get a taste of them. They can get a taste of what love is. And parents who are lost, who are not in Christ, can love their children, right? Like there's a way in which that will work out. There is a way in which we can get a sense of it in the world. The, the world can get a sense of what it is to be happy, and the world can get a sense of what it means to be at peace. They can apprehend it. They can comprehend it. They, 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 can, they can define it. But they'll never actually taste it. And that really establishes, that's really what we're seeking to discern or define and, and show as we talk about these fruit, this, this fruit of the Spirit, only by the work of God through Jesus, His Son, and his Holy Spirit is the fruit of a transformed life produced in people. It's his work that transforms the inner person. It's his work that, that, that plants the seeds, that, that tends the tree, that bears the fruit. And we are that tree. Only by the work of God through Jesus the Son and his Holy Spirit is the fruit of a transformed life produced in his people. We, we as God's people, should be marked by love. We should be marked by happiness or joy. We, we should be a people who are known because we live at peace, even when the world seems to crumble around us. Same things could be, be said about all three of these things. We, we all desire them. We all long for them. There's only one source for them. We, we all long for inner peace, right? A peace of mind, a peace of heart, a, a, a peace of our internal person. We, we long for relational peace. This is not just true of Christians. This is true of every person who lives. We, we long for peaceful circumstance. Who doesn't want life to be simple and easy and, and without conflict, right? Everybody wants that. In fact, some of us go to great lengths to avoid any kind of conflict because we want peace so badly. We, 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 I, think, I, think, I think this could be even said that even those who reject God, who believe in some higher power, even those who reject the God of the Bible but believe in some higher power, I think even they desire a peace with their understanding of who God is or what that higher power is. That's why there's movies made about, you know, like um, uh, uh, the, the, the Incas and, and the people of um, South America back in the day sacrificing people to appease the gods, right? Or the movie King Kong. It just popped into my head and it threw my thoughts off. The movie King Kong, you know, the, the island people were sacrificing the, the beautiful blonde girl to appease the power that was, right, that they saw as a, 
a God because they just don't want the gods to be angry with them. There's only one source, though, and that's the true God. It's just it's crazy that the world will desire it. They'll strive after it. They, they can define it. They can get a sense of it. They can get a taste of it. But apart from God's work, they'll never be able to produce it. They'll never ever to actually be able to fully enjoy it. But as his people, we can. And so only by, God, by the work of God, through Jesus the Son and his Holy Spirit, is peace provided for and produced in his people. So this isn't just true about love. It's not just true about joy. It's not just true about the other fruit of the Spirit. It is true about peace. We will only ever know peace because God's provided it and he produces it in his people. And, and I don't want you to take my word for that. I want us to look to the Scripture. I want us to look to the text. I want us to see it broken out in Scripture. But this is God's provision for his people that he produces in his people. So we're going to read again Galatians 5, 16 through 26. Uh, I'd encourage you to open the Bible there. The verses will be on the screen behind me, but I want you to be able to see it. I want you to see it in the text. We'll read it, we'll pray, and then we will dig in. So, beginning in verse 16 of Galatians 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Doesn't sound like a lot of peace. And things like these. I warn you, I warn you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, I, I would just seek and ask that you be with us. This is your word. It's, it's the word that you work through. That it's the word that you've brought fruit in this world. It's the word by which you've made yourself known, made the gospel clear, given us such great hope in Jesus Christ. And so I just pray that you meet us now in the midst of it. As I preach and seek to explain and express the truths here, I pray that you'd guard our hearts and minds, that we would... We would Remain focused that we would hear clearly what you intend to say to us today. It's these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about peace this week, it, my mind kept going back to war. There, some, some, some strange way they're related, right? Like, I, I started thinking about my military experience and the training that I received, and I joined the military in uh, the season in the season where Desert Shield was ramping up. It had been going for several months, and, and I'm signing into the Army, and Desert Shield is the military operation that preceded the, the war in um, uh, Iraq, uh, which was called Desert Storm. Uh, and as I'm at basic training, the declaration of war was made, and we're at war. We were already in a conflict, but, but we're at war. And I received orders to go. In fact, my basic training was was accelerated. I missed the last week of basic training, which didn't have a lot. I, I completed all the necessary requirements, but, 
but I had I, I missed the the graduation and some of the ceremonial things that they do um, for that. And I was moved into my uh, training, which I was a Cobra helicopter mechanic, uh, the first job I had in the military. And I was being, I was going to be responsible for maintaining aircraft that were anti-take weapons that were uh, used to. And in fact, in in Desert Storm, they were actually used to corral and guide POWs who would just surrender to these helicopters who were hovering above them, and they would, they would move them until, until people could uh, come along and detain these POWs. Um, but they were responsible for the taking of life. And at the time, I was, man, I was trained for this. I was excited about it, and I wanted to do it. And then later on in my military career, I was a, I was a door gunner on a Black Hawk. I was a crew chief on a Black Hawk. And man, that, I, I'll tell you, there's not many things funner, more, more fun Funner. I don't. You can decide which one you want to use there. Um, that's your choice. Uh, but it's exhilarating to hang out the side of a Black Hawk helicopter with a machine gun, and and you're shooting and taking out, cut, cutting down trees, taking out targets, like all these things. It was amazing. The sense of power, right? Like just, just watching that line of bullets hit the ground and the tracers running out of it at night and all of these things. It was a blast. But I'm so thankful. I look back. As a door gunner on a Black Hawk helicopter, I received orders to deploy and go to war. In both instances, my orders were rescinded. I'm so thankful because it's as fun as it can be in training. I don't want to look back and think that I actually took a life or actually had to shoot at a person. But this kept coming to mind. That in in this world, we, we seek to maintain peace by the show of force. We trained for it every day, and even in the days that I wasn't out flying or shooting the weapon, I was preparing to go train for it, so I was maintaining the helicopter. I was keeping it, keeping it ready to, to battle ready, right? Like maintenance was always done to prevent any failure when it was on the field, and everything was in preparation for the event that we got called up, that we use force to maintain peace, the idea that we can get one from the other. In fact, World War I was at one time called a war to end all wars. I think it was H.G. Wells that coined that phrase, a war to end wars, right? Like, this is going to be the last one because it's such a big one. It's going to be the one that ends them all. Well, obviously, history's proven that didn't, that didn't work out. And then my mind starts, one of my favorite film genres is war movies, military movies. And my mind is gravitating to these, especially scenes that were, that really, that, that, that really depict the horrors and the, and the brutality of war. Uh, we Were Soldiers. I don't know if you've seen the movie by Mel Gibson, or it's got Mel Gibson in it. It's, about a, it's, it's from a book uh, written by a guy that's about his time in, at war, and it's, br- it's brutal. It's just the brutalities of war. Uh, uh, the, the Band of Brothers, the series, the HBO series, The Band of Brothers, the brutality of war, like in, the, in, in Bastogne, when, when they're hungry. They, got, they, they don't have enough weapons, and the, and the Germans every night are ba- basically just bombing the daylight out of them, and, and this trees blowing up around them. It's just so brutal. But, but one that kept coming to mind, and I kept thinking on it, and I just, it, I just couldn't get it out of my mind, is the, the pictures, or, the, or one of the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan. It's not one of my favorite war movies, but it does such a good job of depicting the, the D-Day invasion of Normandy especially on Omaha Beach. Omaha Beach, history tells us, was the most violent uh, place uh, of the five beaches. It was the most violent one. These men climbing off the boat, and before, the, before they're even off the boat, they're getting shot because the, the enemy machine guns nested above them. 
And then they begin to jump over the sides of the boat and the weight on the, of their gear is so heavy that some of them drown before they even get an opportunity to get onto dry ground. And those that then do make it out of the boats have little to no cover under machine gun fire, grenades, mortars, all these things, going, rockets going off around them. And it, it, it dawned on me that in the middle of that, that much like the world can get a taste for what peace is, this gives those of us that have never actually served in combat to get a taste of what it is to actually see this level of violence up close and personal. So this, the world, can, they can get a glimpse of it. We can describe it. They can talk about it. They can think about it. They can, they can get a sampling of it. They can define it. They can, they can watch movies about it, right? They can see it depicted in film, but they'll never know it. Because the truth is, we are born in a world at war. From the moment of conception, we are born, or or, or we are conceived into a a, a race of people that are at war. Only by God, through the work of the through through the through the work of Jesus the Son and His Holy Spirit, is peace provided for and produced as people we have always lived at every day of our lives at war. And we may not have gone to combat. We may not have gone to a place where the bullets are actually flying. But the moment we're birthed out of the, out of the womb, the moment that we come into to this world and we take our first breath, it's as if we've walked off the boats at Normandy into a world at war. But it's a world at war that's much far more deadly. It's a world at war that's much more dangerous and real than we actually give it credit for. And I say that because the, the reality is that this is true of every person. I don't know what the population was when, when, when D-Day invasion happened, but only a few thousand compared to millions actually invaded that beach. Only, only thousands compared to millions actually went and fought the war. But every person who has ever been born is born into a world at war. A deadly war. And it's a war not fought with guns and not fought with bombs. And, but it's a war against a sovereign and almighty God that we have been rebelling against since the first question ever asked and the first lie ever told did God really say you won't really die and everyone since then every person who has ever been born has been born into a world at war and will never know peace unless God grants it to them I think the reality is it's no wonder that everyone who lives and why that peace is an innate desire, that we desire an inner peace because somewhere in our minds God has written eternity upon our hearts and we can't be at peace apart from Him. I, I think it's no surprise that we desire relational peace because we recognize the relationship with God is so drastically broken as we look at the broken relationships around us. I think it's no surprise or no, no, no shocking reality that, that we long for peaceful circumstances because we're always trying to get back to that place of harmony that God created for us in the garden. And I think it's no surprise that 
even those who reject the God of the Bible that believe in some higher power desire to make peace with that God because they know he's more powerful than them. So where do we turn? We turn to him because he's provided for and he is producing peace in his people. What is this peace? What, what is it? Let's define it. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's understand it. So, so, so to define it, I think it's actually easier than defining love. Love, love is, it, the world has some broken view of love, right? And in some ways, I think, as I pointed out last week, I think the church has some broken view of joy, that we, we don't want joy and happiness to equate to one another. And so we, we, get, we over-spiritualize the idea of joy, and now we don't know how to rejoice because we don't want to look happy when we rejoice because, come on, I mean, that joy and happiness are not the same thing, right? That, no, they are. I sought to point that out to you last week. But it's striking to me as I started to look at this this week that this is one that we seem to all agree about. Everyone seems to agree about what peace is. The biblical concept of peace is a condition or sense of harmony, well-being, and prosperity. The, the, the idea is built out of two primary uh, words from the, from the Bible. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is shalom. Its derivatives, I'm just going to share some things from, from a Bible dictionary that, that I think will be helpful. Its derivatives have, have been said to represent one of the most prominent theological concepts in the Old Testament. The word group occurs over 180 times in the Old Testament. And one of the things that we learn as we study the Bible is the more often it's spoken, the bigger the theme, the bigger the concept, the bigger the idea, the bigger the reality. It goes on to say that it's not a negative or passive concept, but involved wholeness and completeness. It, it, it's not just about the, the, the things, things not happening, but it's about what it's producing, wholeness and completeness. It's used to refer to harmony between friends or allies, triumph in war, success in one's endeavors, good health, and security. The New Testament equivalent is <clears throat> arene. It's a Greek word. It's, it, it's used in Galatians. The, it's, the, it's the word that Paul uses in Galatians 5.22 when he speaks about what the Spirit produces in us. It occurs in every New Testament book except for 1 John, most frequently used in Luke, then followed by Romans, and then Ephesians. And it's really shocking in Ephesians because Ephesians is such a short book, but it's emphasized repeatedly in the book of Ephesians. At the beginning and at the closing and all the way through, Ephesians really is a book about peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. And so, so we see that the Bible has this view, and it builds this view out using these two words. And, the, and, and originally, the, word, the Greek word was used mainly to just say that it was used to define the absence of war. But because then it got used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it seems that in, in its usage it began to be broadened to, to mimic the idea of shalom. And so it's a condition or sense of harmony, well-being, and prosperity. Well, let's look at the cultural concept, the world's concept of peace. The definition, I went to Merriam-Webster, you can go do the same thing. It is stated to be a state of tranquility or quiet. Now, they use different words. Are they the same thing? Well, Merriam-Webster and all the wise people or smart people that decided that this is what the English word is going to be used for, they go on and break it out in a number of sub-definitions. Sub, uh, and so I just left this one up there for you, a state of tranquility or quiet, such as freedom from civil disturbance, a government that likes one another, a, a people governed that like one another, freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts, inner Peace, harmony, and personal relationships. Oh, we actually get along. A state period or mutual concord between governments. Oh, we're not fighting one another. 
a pact or agreement to end hostilities between those who have been at war or in a state of enmity. And as we look at the, the biblical concept, it's, it's not any really any different than the world's concept. We agree. Peace is, is, is a life of harmony, of well-being, of prosperity, it's tranquility, it's quietness. It brings with it a sense that, that there's a lack of disturbance in our life. It's a calmness. We can picture it with things like still waters, right? Like a, 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 an ocean, we wouldn't say, depicts peace when the waves are bashing against the beach. But when the water's still, there's peace. So though the world can define it, though they can comprehend it and even get fleeting moments of it, they'll never truly understand or enjoy it fully because they're at war with God. But the Spirit produces peace within each of us. It's, I just want you to see its relation between the idea of love and joy. Because this is one thing that the Spirit is doing. This is His fruit that He is producing in us. This is the, the byproducts of His work. And so we see the love that He produces in us. The, the, the underworking attitude, the, the, the underlying motive behind what we do. The, move, the thing that moves us. Because we love something, we move towards it. We move after it. We pursue it. And so good works, if they're really truly going to be good works, so Ricky showed us this in 1 Corinthians. When 1 Corinthians 3 lays out what love is, it shows us what love isn't. But it starts, 1 Corinthians, or not 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 13. When 1 Corinthians 13 opens, it tells us all the noble works without love, not being motivated by love, being pushed along by selfish motives and desires. They're empty, they're nothing. They're nothing but clanging gongs and noisy cymbals. It's the underlying motive that the Spirit produces in us to move us along in, in step with God. The joy is the emotion that God produces, the Spirit of God produces within us. And peace is the state of being that God produces within His people as we walk with Him. It's His work in us that produces peace. Works of the flesh, works of the flesh, they rob us of peace in every aspect of life. Every aspect of life, the works of the flesh, they work against the things of peace. And we can see this in this passage we just read. I highlighted, I pointed it out as we got to, to the, uh, the, the works of the flesh. Idol specifically, let's look at verse 20. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity. It's an interpersonal struggle, interpersonal fighting, in, in, re relational strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division. This is what the works of the flesh produce. Anytime we lean into ourselves, anytime we seek to do anything in our own power, we shouldn't be surprised if we find a bunch of division, find a bunch of discord, find a bunch of anger, find a bunch of hurt, find a bunch of problem. Because works of the flesh rob us of peace in every aspect of life. Verse 26, as, as, as this passage closes and, and moves into chapter 6 and, and his closing thoughts and exhortations, he says, let us not become conceited. The idea being that, that, that we're self-focused, that we're self-concerned, that we only care about ourselves, provoking one another. That's not peace. Envying one another. That doesn't result in peace. He's calling us to a, a life in step with God and His Spirit and the work that He is doing. But it doesn't start here. In Galatians 5.15, he's already referred to the works of the flesh that cause them to bite and devour one another. 
to consume one another. In Galatians 5.10, he refers to the people who are troubling the Galatians, the Judaizers who are coming in and saying, hey, Jesus is great. But you know what? You need Jesus plus the works of the flesh. You need the law. You need, your, you need to add to his work. It wasn't sufficient. Galatians 3.1, he speaks of those who have bewitched the Galatians with lies and a false gospel. That's not peace. Be, bewitched? Is that something that we want? Is that something we want? But this isn't a concept that just starts in Galatians. I've already, I've already hinted at it. I've already, I've already dropped some ideas about it. But this is, this is covered from beginning to end in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the curse of Genesis 3. Genesis 2 ends. Do you know how it ends? Do you remember? As a little kid, it was the craziest verse in the Bible to me. They were naked and without shame. I'm thinking, who? In, like, why do we need to know that? Because it shows us the harmony, the closeness, the connection between these people. And there was no reason to be ashamed. There was no one shaming another. There was no sense of our desire to be ashamed within either of them. It was a place of harmony and peace. And then Genesis 3. The serpent comes in, tempts the woman. She eats the fruit. Gives it to Adam. He eats the fruit. And immediately, immediately, the immediate effect, the immediate outworking of their sin is they desire to cover up. All of a sudden, there's division. Did God really say, you won't really die? It'll make you like him. Oh, man, that, that fruit looks good. It'll make me wise. It's, I, that's got to be good food. Let me have a bite. Hey, Adam, listen to talk. Let me tell you about this. And immediately, Oh, man, I can't be too close to her. I can't be too close to him. And then they hear God in the garden. Oh, man, that's God. We better hide. Because they were afraid. That's not peace. And then God comes and speaks to them and pronounces his judgment and brings curse upon the serpent and the creation and judgment upon them. He says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. Enmity. It's a war. Strife. There's going to be a conflict between you and the woman, the serpent, or your offspring and her offspring. There is going to be a war. That's not peace. Our sin is the end of peace and harmony in this world. To the woman, he says, oh, toil, hardship, and childbirth. And by the way, your desire is going to be contrary to your husband, but he's going to rule over you. And suddenly, interpersonal relationships are affected. And it's not just marriages that are hard. We see in the very next chapter that a brother gets jealous of his, of his brother. Cain gets jealous of Abel, and he kills him. Every relationship is affected because of our sin. He says to the man, oh, oh, man, you would have dug and you would have planted a seed in it. Would have flourished. No. Toil, hard work, thorns and thistles the earth is going to provide as you seek to rule over it. It's going to rebel against you. And then he sends them out of the garden. Exile. 
distance, division from the one who created them and the harmony he had provided to them. And ever since, we've been longing to get back, trying to find ways back, trying to pretend we can live there, trying, pretending, performing as if we can attain it. But it's never going to happen. And we see that pronounced all the way, we, we see that working itself out all the way through into the, into the rest of the books of the, the first five books of the, the Bible, the, the, the Pentateuch, the, the books of the law where he enters into covenant with people and every time they fail, to the pronouncement of the prophets demonstrating their failures, Jeremiah 6.14 is one that came to mind. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. They've done a superficial work saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's all a fraud. It's all a sham. It's all a lie. It's superficial at best. And that's just one. Uh, there's lists of them that we could look at. It's all over the prophets as they pronounce the, the removal of peace between God and his people because of their sin. The New Testament letters, Paul in the book of Ephesians calls out this in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, we all lived among the dead, trapped in sin, under the rule of the world, under the, 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 the influence of the devil among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the nature, out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, this is who we were the moment we were born. This is who every, this describes every person who was ever born. Nature, children of wrath. That doesn't depict peace. We were his enemy. All the way to the end of the Bible, the beasts and the wars of Revelation. I don't know if you've read Revelation recently, but there's lots of conflict there. And it's, it's striking, even as I sit here and think about it, just having studied it not long ago. We're actually going to look at it in the fall, part of our, going back to our series, The God, uh, Alpha and Omega, God from Beginning to End. But I, I, there's a passage that's coming to mind that, that it, it, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, man, it's beautiful. If you're invited, you're blessed, right? Like if you get a place at that table, you're going to raise a glass to the glory of God through the, sitting at the table with your Savior, Jesus Christ, celebrating the work of your king. It's beautiful, but it's immediately followed by an invitation for all the birds of the air to come to the supper of God and feast on the flesh of kings. And it is. It, it's frightening. That's not peace. And to be fair, to be honest, these depictions in the Bible of the lacking peace because of our sins shouldn't surprise us. We rebelled against a holy and righteous God. We went to war with the sovereign, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present God. Why should we be surprised that his wrath and his force and the force of his wrath is so strong that it's going to bring an eternal judgment? That shouldn't shock us in any way. What should shock us is that there is a provision for the desire of peace that's in every one of us. You see, our, our works of our flesh ruin peace in every aspect of our life. There's, there's a reason why no one on this earth really feels a lasting sense in themselves. 
feels a lasting sense of peace within. There's why there's no relational peace among people that's lasting. It's why wars are being fought every day. I, I, I looked it up earlier in the week, and I think there's something like 40 wars or conflicts going on in the world right now. Every day there's a war being fought between governments. Shouldn't shock us that that's true. But man, it's a reason to rejoice because God has provided for our peace through the new covenant in Christ. You think about this. What we deserve, what we, what we demanded even in the war was an enemy that was so powerful that it just this. Oh, just a snap of his fingers could have ended us. And yet in his mercy and his grace, he provides for us the opportunity to satisfy the desire for peace that's in every one of us. He did this. God provided our peace through the new covenant in Christ. And, and in effect, in, in all reality, that the, every covenant that God entered into with mankind was a covenant for peace. You will be my people. I will be your God. We will walk in relationship together. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I respect, expect of you. And every one of them failed. Adam failed. He was a failed covenant head. And now we're in him. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Oh, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But he was not a perfect, faithful, covenant partner. Israel failed. David failed. But Christ never failed. He tells us in coming and living the sinless life and Approaching his sacrificial death, one in which we're going to remember in just a moment as we close the service, that he comes and he lives a sinless life and he puts on flesh, he dwells among us, and never once does he live for anything but the glory of God the Father. And he faces that cross and he tells his disciples before he goes, You know what? My death is for the establishment of a new covenant, a new peace tree between God and Man, and I'm the perfect covenant partner. A new covenant in him. Then he tells us that if you believe in me, if you confess my name, if you walk with me, if you trust in my work and my sacrificial effort, you will be saved. And what that means is you will have peace with God. You will be a member of that peace treaty. You will be a member of that people of peace that God is establishing in Christ, God provided for our peace through the new covenant in Christ, and we can count on it today because Jesus is no longer dead in a grave. He is risen and reigning, owning all authority in heaven and on earth. Every enemy placed under his feet, even death. This is our hope. There should be rejoicing in our hearts. There should be expressions of happiness on our faces because Jesus has brought us peace. Again, this is not something that's just... Brought to us in a, in a snippet of a verse. This is a biblical concept that's been broken out from beginning to end. But it's made clear in the New Testament. Ephesians, Paul's writing, and he, he tells us that, hey, you were by nature children of wrath, but God made you alive, and he seeds you in the heavenly realms with Christ, and he's created you. You are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. And he comes to the second half of the chapter, and he begins to show us what that means. 
Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, for he himself is our peace. He is the tranquility of our hearts. He's the quietness of our soul. He's the one who enables us to walk in peace. He is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The works of the flesh, the works of the law that divided Jew and Greek and man from God because our works of the flesh will never produce peace brought us unity together and brought us to be one man and united us so that we are, we are able to enjoy peace with one another and we are able to enjoy peace with God. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the end of war, the end of violence, the end of fighting against him and being his enemy. We are now his people. We're people of his kingdom. We're we're children of the king. He goes on and breaks out these different analogies that we are the temple that he dwells in. He's given us peace with himself and one another. He's even promised peace circumstantially. And a lot of times the church tries to avoid this one because, well, you know, when we get saved, it doesn't necessarily get easier. We just see all the brokenness and lacking peace around us. And we don't want to talk about circumstantial peace. But Jesus has promised us circumstantial peace in eternity. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. The God of peace, the one who's going to establish peace, who can actually stand and use force to bring about peace. We're going to conquer. We're going to overcome. We're going to rule, and Satan is going to be crushed. Revelation 21, 3 through 4 Man, I love this passage, and I long for the day that we get to walk into it. And I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The pain and suffering of this life that causes us to mourn and weep will be gone. And death shall be more. The, the final enemy, the final war that we must fight will be defeated. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. We will walk into a world, into a new heavens and new earth marked by peace. No more trouble. No more trial. No more suffering. No more hardship. No reason to do anything but smile because we will be at peace. He will provide us peace with himself, peace relationally, peace circumstantially, but not yet on the earth. Don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. Don't miss this. Peace is provided for Christ. The promise is real. The hope is there. But Jesus taught his followers that they, that they would face difficulty in this world. Luke 12, 49 through 53. Listen to, listen to part of his mission. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. Oh, I thought Jesus was a peaceful guy. I thought he was a guy that didn't bring trouble. I I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's looking at the cross. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No. 
but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. If you're a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, you, you probably already know that this is true. But what he's really pointing out is not the interfamily struggles, it's the reality that his people cannot be at peace with the world. That as he brings a people unto himself and makes them holy unto himself, he separates them from the world. Our peace is with him. We, we, we'll face struggle and trial. He says on a different occasion, John 16, 33, the night before he's arrested, he says to his disciples, I have said these things that, to, to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But in me, I want you to have peace. But take heart, I have overcome the world. For all this talk about peace, we should expect that as long as we live in this, in this world, that we will face some trouble of some kind, but circumstantial peace is coming. We look for the day, we long for the day that that peace is final and complete for those of us that are in Christ. This is what God has provided. This is what God has given. This is what God has blessed us with in his son, Jesus Christ. And but he had to provide it. He had to do that work before he could begin to produce it in us. But he does that. God produces peace within us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's point is to the Galatians. They're, they're, they're being teased about like, oh, come follow the law. Come do these things. Come, come earn your place. Come keep yourself safe. Add these things to the work of Christ. And he's like, wait a minute. If you entered by faith, are you now keeping yourself by your works? If you entered by the Spirit, are you now going to walk in flesh and think that you're going to stay safe? No. The Spirit produces these things. The Spirit produces peace. The works of the flesh are always going to lead you to less peace. This is an inner peace, a peace of mind, right? Like he's doing this work from within. So you think about what's going on here and what we see happening in the scriptures that God is showing all the peace you desire, all the peace that you long for, all the peace that you want, the relational peace, the circumstantial peace, the divine peace, even the inner peace have all been given and all being produced in God by, the work of, by his work in his son and through his spirit. The spirit reminds us of what Christ has accomplished. Our flesh is, is bound to wander. We, we're like sheep who have often gone astray. We're like looking for everything else. I, I need peace here. You have peace with Christ. He's done it for you. He's earned it. He's, he's bound it. He's made it yours. He's protecting it for you. The Spirit reminds us of God's power at work on our behalf. Peter tells us that our salvation is secure in Christ and, and it is being guarded by faith, by the power of God. The Spirit, the Spirit reminds us of the hope that we've been given that one day we'll walk into a world that's marked only by peace. Paul's point to the Philippians was, or, or to the Galatians was they enter by faith and they walk by faith. And they, that's why he's calling them to walk in step with the Spirit, to, to walk in the Spirit, to live by faith. And as they do, this fruit is the byproduct of the Spirit's work in our hearts and lives. So here's the reality. If we're not experiencing peace, if we're a, a people who aren't marked by peace and whose hearts aren't at rest and peace, it's not because the Spirit has failed, because God's peace isn't enough. Because we're trying to walk in the flesh. 
instead of the Spirit. But because He's provided it, because He'll produce it, and because it's real, He calls us, God calls us to pursue peace as we walk in step with the Spirit. Again, all over the place. It's here. Walk in the Spirit. Be at peace with one another. Don't be marked by works of the flesh. But Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so here's the reality. The world is not going to like everything we do or say. But that does not give us the right to go to war with the world. It is our responsibility, so far as we have some measure of control, so as far as we can do it, it is our responsibility to strive to live at peace. Not at all costs. Not to the disregard of God's holiness, not to enter into sin or not to join in sin, not to give, to, to give uh, um, use our freedom in Christ as a, as a license to sin. That's not what he's talking about. But so far as is possible, as far as you're responsible for it, so far as you're able, live in such a way that you can live at peace with everyone. Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Writing to the church is one of the one another's, that we're to be about one another. That there should be a way that we should be fighting for peace. I don't like the combination of those words, but we're striving for peace together and for mutual upbuilding. That happens within that peace. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness. So humility is the opposite of conceit. With gentleness and patience, both fruit of the Spirit. Bearing with one another in love. Oh, a fruit of the Spirit. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit of the bond in the bond of peace. Now, I just want to draw your attention to this. We read from Ephesians just a minute ago. I told you it's a book about peace. He opens with grace and peace to you. He describes how God has made peace with us through Jesus' work. And now we're a people of blessing. He shows us how it's been made true for every believer. That we were dead and now we're made alive. But we've been given peace with God, peace with one another. And then he, as he turns to the instructional component or the instructional part of Ephesians, the second half is filled with commands. He says, it's your responsibility now to maintain the peace you've been given. In fact, to do anything less... Well, let's call it what it is. Sin. So all these angry Christians that are out there throwing stones at one another, instead of seeking to find peace together in Christ, their sin might be as bad as the one that they're pointing out. We can talk about that later. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Again, this is us, us living in a, in a broken world that serves a lot of other gods who will never know peace and who, who don't really want peace with us, but it's our responsibility. Strive for peace with everyone. But I love this. It keeps us from just running off and ignoring things and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness matters, right? Like We're not ignoring the fact that sin is real and it's the reason Jesus died. But strive for peace with everyone. Strive to be a peaceful people. And Peter, writing... Citing Psalm 34, writes 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Again, giving us some guardrails here. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Oh, pursuing peace, striving after peace is a righteous act. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But it's the face of the Lord as against those who do evil. We're not going to arrive at peace on our own, but God has provided that that in a world where, where everyone is at war against him, that some that come to him in Christ will know peace. And he is going to produce it in those people so that we don't just have an idea of it, but we can actually experience it as we wait on that final peace to be finally established. We, the church, should of all people be a people marked by peace. But not one we've generated ourselves, but one produced in us by the Spirit as we walk with him. Well, how do we do that? How do we accomplish it? Well, all of these verses that I've just read, they don't just call us to do it, but they, they give us glimpses. They give us glimpses of how to, to pursue those things. Holiness, don't, don't run off into evil, right? Don't live in sin. But, but, but Paul, writing to the Galatians, walk in the Spirit, live by faith. I think we could sum, sum it up a couple of different ways. One way would be to pursue God in everything. Live to see Him glorified in every way. Walk with him. We've said it both weeks. We've said it. Uh, another way to define how we do it uh, is, is read the Bible and pray more. Right? Paul tells us, hey, present your request to God with thanksgiving and the peace, of, the peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Read the Bible. Read his word. Know him. Think on him. Get to see him. Walk with him. Hear from him. And pray to Him. Don't just read the Bible and pray. Trust Him. Like that, we added that, 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 that last week. But I want to add another one this week. Another way that we can pursue peace. And I, I really actually appreciate it. One of our equipped classes, this, this term is Habits of Grace by Dave Mathis. And he lays out Bible study. It's three big headings. Bible study, prayer. There's Habits of Grace, spiritual disciplines. But he also calls out time together with God's people. You know how we pursue peace? It's not by sitting alone in our home. And it's not by just hanging out with our wife or our husband, someone we generally like most of the time. It's by living life together. In fact, we can't know what peace is if we're not walking in it relationally. And we get to practice it. We get to pursue it together. So living life together as God's people, striving together for God's peace. That's how we do it. And it's all rooted in the work of Christ. It's all produced by the power of His Spirit as we walk in faith together. Let's pray.